Hello and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed so that, uh, in the words of Denzel Washington in the movie Philadelphia, even a seven-year-old can understand it. (laughs) I'm Kevin Johnson, Physician and Informatics Chair at Vanderbilt, and it's a pleasure to give you a little edutainment on your daily run, walk, hike, or whatever and however you enjoy podcasts. This episode, we talk about one of the hottest areas of research in the field of biomedical informatics called precision medicine. Precision medicine is the culmination of years of work collecting healthcare data about every individual and putting it into a computable form in an electronic health record. The holy grail of informatics was the idea that we could reuse these data to make sure that information unique to you was used to make diagnoses, prescribe medications, and even tell you about your disease risks. Josh Denny, a physician and fellow informaticist here at Vanderbilt, has been a world leader in this movement for over 15 years. It's a pleasure to have him on the podcast. Josh has played a major role in the creation of the All of Us Initiative, formerly the Precision Medicine Initiative, at the National Institutes of Health. This is a big initiative with the goal of collecting data for at least a million people, including electronic health records data and genomics data, in a secure and private way, but also in a way that supports researchers around the world who are using precision medicine for research. In fact, Josh is now CEO of the All of Us program, which when you hear him talk about this topic will come as no surprise to you. He's low key, affable, funny, and really smart. We also welcome Brian Carlson, who is Vice President for Patient Experience at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and an expert in patient-facing technologies. He knows his way around information technology and informatics as well, as you'll soon discover. Last but never least, it was a pleasure to have Rochelle Jenkins sit in. Rochelle is the graduate program manager in biomedical informatics at Vanderbilt. She offered the practical perspective about precision medicine and helped us to break down this complex topic into much more understandable chunks. We didn't have a songwriter for this episode, unfortunately, but we have the next best thing. We have a songwriter after this episode. Okay, hope you enjoy. shaker eggs so if we have a songwriter I can give everybody an egg or we can you know just do beats uh-huh. all that kind of stuff do you sing I do not you sing no not at all not at all notice he didn't ask me <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, because, because I now know you have you play an instrument right did you I used to a long time ago yeah what did anymore. you play sax sax did you do anything with it like did you play in college no did you would you no. play like fourth grade uh, <laughs> through through high school a little bit oh that's pretty good, though. And you didn't play in college. I did not. Did you promise them in I your didn't. letters that you were going to play in college? No, 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 no. Because, no. no. you know, everybody in their personal statements, they say yeah. stuff like, I have long been playing the saxophone <laughs> and <laughs> really look forward to joining the brass quintet and blah, 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 blah. You didn't do any of that. I did not, no. And I didn't actually, like, play in the band. I just, in, in high school. Yeah. I did in middle school. Oh. And elementary. Yeah, I played... Base I think all they the were way through college, yeah. medical school, all of it. Yeah, wow. I was, that's cool. I'm a you know I came here in part yeah, because yeah. of the whole music scene. I mean yeah. that probably doesn't surprise you too much. I got yeah. I got recruited here because I went to the Bluebird Cafe, and I heard Pat Alger play, who is this fantastic songwriter who plays does stuff for James Taylor, and has done stuff for a bunch of other people in the world, and is phenomenal. And I asked him a question because uh, I got the nerve up, you know me. 
and I said uh, something like, what do you play when you're at home by yourself? And this guy, who's just like a typical songwriter guitarist, starts playing this Bill Evans piano stuff on his guitar, which is impossibly hard. Mm. The whole room erupts in applause. I'm like, this is an awesome town. This is just <laughs> such a totally awesome town. So that's why I kind of came here. Okay, welcome to Informatics in the Round, guys. I'm going to start with you. Rochelle Jenkins is on my left. She is program manager for the Department of Biomedical Informatics here. She oversees our entire educational program. Hey, Rochelle. Hi, Kitty. You ready? I am ready. Okay, good. Next, we have Brian Carlson, who is the VP or the Vice President of Patient Experience. It's important to put that away. It is, actually. What <laughs> else could VP possibly mean? <laughs> Maybe a whole other podcast. Okay, we won't go there. Good. Well, thanks for coming, Brian. My pleasure. Okay. Good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you here. And then Josh Denny is here all the way from the 15th floor of the building. Now, we're actually on the 14th floor, so it's not a giant leap. But thank you, Josh, for coming down. A pleasure to be here. I'm glad to hear that we've installed a bar on the 14th floor. Yeah. Shh, don't tell. I forgot about that. <laughs> so for people who don't know you, Josh, I'll say just a word. So Josh is a professor uh, of biomedical informatics here at Vanderbilt. He has actually kind of been a hometown hero. He wasn't born here, but most people think he might as well have been because he's been here pretty much since his undergrad days all the way through now. He's never left. He's been uh, just a fantastic member of the community and has really kind of reinvented giant parts of what we think about today in biomedical informatics. I hear you have a new role that's about to start at the NIH. What is that role? <laughs> uh, I will be... Uh the incoming CEO for the All of Us Research Program. C-suite guy. <laughs> ah. Thank you. The, um, the position was called a director role. Um, it's part of the National Institutes of Health. And uh, with a few of the positions in the NIH, or National Institutes of Health, they've uh, established CEO roles for things that are more maybe independent uh, entities in a way in terms of how they're run and have a very focused mission. Um, at which all of us research programs, one of those. Another one would be the clinical center, for instance. Okay. All still part of the NIH, but um, that is the role. That's pretty cool. That Congratulations. Pretty cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I'm excited about it. Here so it you're is. the founding CEO. <laughs> that means you are you going to like put a giant picture of yourself right next to the president on the wall? <laughs> Most definitely not. So Josh, this is the lovely color red you're turning right now. Like thank you, thank you. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to avoid pictures of myself in the office. That's yeah, we'll sure. do that at the end. Thanks. Well, yeah, at least we'll do yeah. one here. You know, what I wanted us to talk about today is one of the hottest topics in the field of, of, I think, informatics. I will honestly tell you that I've gone home and tried to explain this to my parents, and they never understand it. And it's one of those things that I just feel like makes so much sense. But I'm hoping you guys can help us to sort of really clear this up. The goal of this show always is for us to have a conversation that my mother can understand. She occasionally listens to the podcast when I go to her house and turn it on. So therefore, you know, it all works. <laughs> so, so the topic is precision medicine. And just for the fun of it, can anybody other than you, like what do you guys think precision medicine means? I personally don't know. No idea. All this time you've been listening to us <laughs> talk about it. Yeah, but... You just sit there and act like you know, but you don't uh, No, I just had never thought much about That's it. That's a good answer. Yes, yep. I hadn't. I know it has to do with medicine, apparently, mm -hmm. but what part of medicine, I don't know. Well, you are going to know now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Brian. So I think of it as knowing me mm -hmm. all the way down to my core, yep. DNA, obviously, and being able to tailor both treatments and also prediction about what may or may not happen to me in the future. That's great. I like that answer. So, Josh, mm -hmm. you're, you're a doc, and I would say... 
most patients probably would have thought you do precision medicine all the time, right? Don't, I mean, don't you, when you see a patient, look at them and make a decision? Why is this something different than that? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and that's almost why we've moved from, in some ways, personalized medicine to precision medicine. Because I think doctors, for all time, have been trying to personalize their care yeah. for the patient um, in front of them. The, uh, I think what we have uh, with precision medicine now are new categories of information that really gets at what you were saying, Brian, about the core of the individual and really knowing things that you can't observe clearly by looking at someone um, and listening to their heart and, and doing a physical exam, things like their DNA or maybe a, a dense measure of their metabolites in their uh, blood or urine or things like that that may help us get better and more precise about what your diagnosis is, how we can treat you better, how we can screen better so so not everyone necessarily needs a colonoscopy at age 50 maybe we can be smarter about doing it earlier in those who need it and later in those who don't so how would you even how would you even know that i don't need my colonoscopy at age 50 like what about me could matter well right now what we would do is we'd ask you about your family history yeah that's that's standard of care for every physician um uh, as you know as a practicing physician as well um, Don't wrap me out like that. Sorry. <laughs> the, um, uh, uh, so we'd ask about family history, and we had basic guidelines um, uh, that would start, for instance, uh, at 50, and then we would modify those if they have an extensive family history of certain kinds of cancer, most notably colorectal cancer. But what we with genetics, we have the chance to find um, those molecular variations right. in DNA that would put someone at higher risk, for instance, and would change... Uh, uh, would maybe indicate that we start screening an individual earlier. That's what we kind of know now. Mm -hmm. And as we do a lot more precision medicine and get large cohorts and large groups of people that we can follow over time, is not only will we maybe get smarter, I think, about screening some people earlier, but maybe we can actually risk assess and understand who's at much decreased risk of uh, needing things uh, and having colorectal cancer, and maybe they can be screened later as well. I think we could probably tackle both sides of the curve and be more precise with how we care for our patients. Wow. Does that sound as complicated to you as it did before? No. it I Actually, I understand it better now. Really? And it makes it, when I go to the doctor, mm -hmm. you know, she's already done everything he said mm -hmm. about my history with my parents, yeah. my father, my mother. My daddy having um, uh, an aorta a rupture. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, before mm -hmm. he had the cancer and mm -hmm. died. Mm -hmm. So now she put that, that at 71, that happened to him. Mm -hmm. You know, my sister had a um, heart valve. Mm -hmm. You know, that's yeah. in my uh, history. Mm -hmm. My mom and all her health issues. So now that makes sense, mm -hmm. listening to what Josh just said. Mm -hmm. So Thank you for sharing all yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And had they been able to say anything about how all that relates to you? It's more or less at a certain age, I'll be just tested to make sure that I don't have the same, like the ruptured aorta mm -hmm. my dad had in his stomach. Yeah, yeah. That, I, that doesn't happen to me, you know. Um, and some of the things that my mom has, you know, she's had breast cancer, but, you know, I right. had kidney cancer. But, you know, just, you know, all the history is there. Yeah, yeah. Of my sister and, you know, any family, grandparents and everything. You have a lot of history for somebody who's 20 years old. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. No problem. No problem. So, Brian, do, do patients even understand this in general? Like, have you, have you brought this up, and do they understand it all? Actually, yes, they do. So, you know, we did a, uh, a study here at Vanderbilt last year where we asked a group of patients, 10 years from now, 
how will you use technology in healthcare to care for yourself? What will it look like? And the, the top two findings, we have had over 400 participants in that, and the top two findings of it, one was that my records will be shared and be accessible by anybody. So everyone will have my, have my data. Number two was it's personalized to me, is that you will use that data. There's an expectation that if I give you the data, you're going to do something with it and that you will be able to uh-huh. alter or prevent something from happening. So yes, I think patients are getting it. Um, you know, a question that I was, I was thinking about as you were, were talking, Josh, was how do you see the practice of medicine changing as we gain this knowledge of precision of medicine? Because now the, the conversation is going to have to alter and what we hear from patients, what I hear from patients, is it's all in that communication. It's in that delivery. Hmm. And how do you deliver that message of now you have this information, what do you do with it? That's a great question, and it's a big one. I think when we started um, planning for the All of Us Research Program, which used to be called the Precision Medicine Initiative, um, uh, we, uh, you know, one of the things we realized is um, the first part of what you said is information portability. So the ability for a patient to take their medical records from one place to another is something that was really hindered. And actually, one of the things we started with is the ability uh, uh, was um, working on standards and protocols to have portability of information. Uh, I'm very interested in that as a researcher in the space because you really need lots of data. We found incredible power here at Vanderbilt in, in partnership with other um, networks across the country um, of have, using the electronic medical record as a discovery platform to ask all sorts of questions. You can ask questions that are never really answered in traditional trials or cohorts like, how does a medication work? And we've been able to do some work there that you know, Brian, has mm-hmm. been implemented in yeah. our clinical care and is actually improving outcomes and you know keeping people from having heart mm-hmm. attacks and mm-hmm. dosing their anticoagulants better and things like that. Um, and uh, I think that rich source, that was part one, mm-hmm. is, is making that hopefully that data more uh, liquid, mm-hmm. so to speak, to flow mm-hmm. from one place to another if you happen to change healthcare providers. So I have to ask a question because you said two words that I imagine not everybody knows, standards and protocols. Tell me, uh, yes. what are you saying about that? Uh, in the case of sharing electronic medical records, uh, you could go back to the old days of, of taking a piece sheet of paper, and you could take a sheet of paper, everyone can look at it and read what's on it. And when you think about taking electronic medical record, each of these different companies that makes an electronic medical record may internally represent it its own way. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to figure out, and lots of people, I shouldn't say, just us, um, uh, really having common vocabularies around how you say things. So in one place, I remember one time we looked here um, a few years ago and found you know, about 10 different ways we mentioned the, you know, describe the same weight yep. at an mm-hmm. outpatient clinic visit. And the number is probably greater than 10 mm-hmm. now are, are you know, many different ways we talk, talk about a sodium and that changes over time. Trying to have a common vocabulary for all that and a common way to actually send things from one place to another. Yep. Does that help? I think so. Does it make sense? Does that help, Rochelle? Um, yeah, I got part of that, the standard part. What didn't you get? <laughs> well, the, I'm still the other part, the protocol. So still trying to... What about what if we talked about, um, maybe an analogy would be something like uh, Legos. All the okay. Legos interact with each other. Mm-hmm. But it used to be that there were these knockoff Legos. And, uh, you know, they wouldn't fit. And so, so there were Lego brand, and there were the, there were, there were the you know, counterfeit Legos, and you couldn't actually put them together. 
And then, you know, now actually you go in the store and there are actually a couple other companies and they and they, they advertise that they fit with the standard blocks, mm-hmm. which by which they mean, you know, Legos. Okay. Um, and you can actually put these two different companies' products together, um, uh, which you didn't used to be able to do. This is the kind of example you get from a guy who's got multiple children. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the Legos. So how about, would, would a protocol be like a recipe? That's a great, that's a great example. I mean, does that sort of work? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I always sort of think of these protocols as a recipe. You're trying okay. to make a cake, right? So there's a set of things you do. There's a set of uh, materials you need. And they're described in a way that, you know, if people say things like a pinch of salt, people go, what's a pinch? Right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not standard. Mm-hmm. If they say it's a teaspoon, which, by the way, also isn't standard, but we, it's supposed to be five mLs. If it's a teaspoon, then you know it's, you pull up the teaspoon, and that's a teaspoon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if they say it's a heaping teaspoon... You don't know what that is either, but mm-hmm. but still, you kind of have a sense, and then there's a sequence of things you have to do. Mm-hmm. That's a protocol. Okay. So yeah. when we say a protocol in medicine, it means here's all the things that you, here's the grab bag of stuff you could use, here's a sequence in which it could occur, and then here are all the outcomes, right? Sometimes the cake is a little flat, or sometimes they'll say things like, for thicker muffins, add more egg, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's all sort of the nuances for how to personalize your muffin recipe but they're still in the same protocol. Okay. That worked out pretty well. I had never thought of that. I want you to know that was 100% made up right now. (laughs) Right, right. Well done. Very good. So you mentioned all of us, and that that sounds like this sort of wonderful green pasture with (laughs) lots and lots of opportunity. You could run wherever you want to run and do whatever you want to do. What is it really? It is all of that. It is not. (laughs) (laughs) That's why they need a CEO of it, because it's so easy. No, go ahead. So so all of us is uh, a really incredible um, initiative that uh, I I got to be part of starting a couple years ago. Um, And uh, the goal was to create a a national cohort in the United States. So a cohort is kind of a very sciencey term, uh, a, a group of individuals who uh, decide to participate in a research study for the common good um, and to advance health, our understandings of health. And we set an ambitious goal to um, uh, enroll a million people or more um, across the United States to really, uh, uh, you know, one of the things we recognize was one of the great strengths of America is its diversity. And uh, most of the research done around the world is, is has not been very diverse. And, um, and so we want uh, to, and, and then the other thing is we really wanted to engage participants as partners, which means we wanted to pioneer things like giving data back to participants. So if you, if you participate in our study and you want to know your genetic results, you can have them. And so you can learn about risks for uh, breast cancer or colon cancer or potentially fatal cardiac arrhythmia, things like that, if we happen to know that. That's not most people. That's maybe 3% of people. But, you know, those people wouldn't have known they had it otherwise. So the whole goal is to get a, a million or more patients' data. That's like an enormous number of patients, isn't it? It is an enormous number of patients. And uh, it's it's really... I mean, do we know patients be... want to do this? And do we have a sense that... I mean, did a lot of people, when this first got announced, say, sign me up? Or has it been one of these things where you have to market it and convince people? 
How's that going? We we, um, we are marketing and, and, and walking through. We uh, have two major ways of recruiting people. One is through the more traditional healthcare provider organization. So academic medical centers, regional medical centers, things like that, FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, um, the VA. These mm-hmm. partners uh, are engaging their patient populations. And then we also offer it to anyone. Now, we haven't really done a national marketing campaign yet. We have really focused on areas in which we set up clinics. And um, uh, we've been very successful in recruiting, and, and we recruit about 3,000 people a week right now, mm-hmm. or a little more. We uh, have about uh, uh, getting close to uh, 240,000 people that have enrolled Holy in the moly. program. Holy wow. So, wow. And, and completed all the major steps of the program. Yeah. So um, it is, uh, we've been very successful at, at recruiting individuals and bringing them in. We have to tell them what it is. Yeah. And, and that's a really important part of it because people are used to a call for action for, you know, breast cancer or heart disease, and we're a call for action for health. And really, we're trying to tackle any disease yeah, yeah. and drug response. And, you know, we talked about the colorectal cancer screening before, you know, so things that might happen in the future and how we could get better at maintaining health and <clears throat> promoting health. Uh, if there's a new smoking out there, you know, that, that we don't understand its, its risks, so environmental exposures. We want to be a platform to help discover those too. So it's really a broad-based study to really uh, be able to study all sorts of things. Right. And, um, and, and communicating that is, is one of the things we, we try to do with participants. We do know that participants join really altruistically. I was going to say, I'll uh, bet you most people don't know what they're joining. Yeah, they, uh, <laughs> about 90% of them say they would join regardless of whether or not they're going to get information back. The information back is a motivator, Mm -hmm. uh, and they're excited about getting information back for sure, and that's a differentiator for our program because really most research studies don't give you anything back. I was telling my seventh grader about the All of Us program. You know what his question was? How's it different than 23andMe? Ah, great question. I get that a lot, actually. Before you answer it, I have to find out. Have you heard of 23andMe? I haven't. All right, what's 23andMe? 23andMe is a, a, a DNA test you can you can oh. take. You swab in your mouth, you send it, and they send you back a whole profile. Now, there's the ancestry side, of which I have a story about that that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And then they also give you, you know, you have wet earwax or dry earwax. Right. So some of it's very... <laughs> that's deep. <laughs> it's deep. You're, like, You're right. I do. <laughs> but it also yeah. tell you, you, yeah. you have the gene for uh, the BRCA gene. Mm-hmm. So tell you things like that okay. as well. So the BRCA gene probably is the breast cancer, ovarian cancer uh, syndrome gene. Okay. Um, uh, that's a great question. So one of the things 23andMe has really been helpful for is making genetics uh, something that a lot more people mainstream. talk about, more mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they did it by talking about ancestry and uh-huh. these fun traits. My favorite is... Uh, uh, whether you can spell uh, asparagus metabolism. I knew you were going to bring that one up. <laughs> um, you know. So they can do a test that tells you whether your urine is going to smell like asparagus if you eat it. Wow. Because and, and, it's actually genetic. And, and the secret and is everyone's urine smells like it smells after asparagus. You just may not be able to smell it. You know, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not even going to ask you if you've tried that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> By no means. Well, I will freely volunteer that I have. And I used to I used to be really worried about it, and then I found out I actually did 23andMe, but I knew it a little bit before that that it's a genetic trait. Not everybody smells that, and there are certain things like cilantro, mm-hmm. which tastes a little bit like soap to certain people. Mm-hmm. That's genetic, mm-hmm. and they can tell you things about hair color, and they can tell you things about your risk for different common diseases. So a lot of people have done 23andMe 
I didn't actually know too much about the ancestry piece, by the way. So, um, so the, the story, my, uh, my wife is adopted. I was known she was adopted. Mm-hmm. And uh, did 23 Me and found her birth father. Hmm. Wow. Uh, got a report back and said, this is your father's, his name. So in the last two years, we've discovered a whole new family hmm. that has been absolutely amazing. Um, so let me. So let me. I know we're supposed to talk about. We want to talk more about this, but I have. To, they're related. So they're actually more related than you know. Uh-huh. But I'm going to bring up one point. So how does that happen? Does that mean her birth father had to join 23andMe? Yep. They both joined 23andMe. They both did the test, and then they both had to release their results. So you have the choice when you do it. Because I did 23andMe, but I just said don't release. Only the results come to me. It's right. not publicly available. Right. They both publicly released it at which point then there was a dna match and they got the reports that said this is your father this is your daughter and was he looking for his daughter he was hoping that's amazing that's a great story yeah wow so the other thing about that that turns out to be really relevant i would imagine is that with that additional family history that affects all of the things that may go on go on in the lineage that would have never been there when you're an adopted person Right. Absolutely. Has that been an issue for you guys? Have people uh, asked questions or had diseases where you've wished you had that family history? Well, certainly she's, you know, when she's asked the question, you know, in, you know, tell me your family history. Well, I'm adopted. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what my family history is. Yeah. Um, this has now opened the door where she now has some understanding and is still learning it, obviously, yeah. but has some understanding of what her family history is. So at a, at a base level, when Without precision medicine, the conversation is, well, I do know this, this, and this now. In the future, now, there's with precision medicine, there's more yeah. potentially there. So. How, are, how are you all handling adoption? So if I, if I sign up and I say I'm adopted, is that a question that you ask me along the way? I honestly don't remember. Uh, no, actually, I'm pretty sure that I do now, now that I think about it. Um, uh, we, uh, when you sign up for all of us, there's a series of health surveys you, sign, you, you fill out. Um, and one of them does ask about family history. And so um, uh, one of the options there are you don't know anything about your family history. Got it. I can't remember if we specifically ask if you're adopted or not. I think we do. Yeah. It probably, I guess it probably doesn't matter, I guess. But right. I don't know. Mm. Hadn't thought about that one too much. That's a big challenge, obviously. So, so you had this All of Us program. We have a million patients. I'm hearing you talk about the fact that there's lots of ways to kind of slice and dice this population, though, <laughs> At first, I thought, "Wow, it's a lot of patients, but is it enough patients?" Because if you if you start looking at a patient who has, you know, maybe they're African American and they have two or three other traits, and now you want to find out patients like them, is a million enough, or is it too many? It's certainly not too many. Um, uh, more is always better. This is uh, when you when you uh, the paradox of personalized medicine, which you could sometimes gets called individualized medicine, treating that one person the best is it requires huge populations to figure out how to interpret those, you know, the perspective of a single person. Um, And, uh, you know, I mentioned um, uh, uh, the importance of diversity. When we think about our different ancestries, um, uh, we find that we have uh, different uh, genetic changes that become common or that are common in different ancestries. And what happens is we may think something is a deleterious change when in fact it's completely benign and it's very common in a different ancestry um, and we also have cures for things and, and treatments that are embedded 
in you know a particular population that is resistant to something or a subset of a population that um, is resistant to something. Is there so, any so, example so to, of that? To, so, so, so the, the most famous right now is a new class of um, uh, anti-cholesterol medications um, called the PCSK9 inhibitors. And it was discovered from a small uh, group of African Americans in Dallas who had um, uh, what are called loss of function mutations. So a, a variant that renders a, a protein thought to be non-functional. And, but what happened in, these, in this population was these, these individuals that had these uh, uh, loss of function changes um, had very low uh, LDL, the bad cholesterol levels, and uh, actually just didn't have heart disease. Um, and uh, that's become a drug which is being uh, very effective in clinical trials. And we think that the story, and there actually are a few other emerging stories along the same vein around other kinds of diseases and other cholesterol variants. Um, so now I'm going to make you work. I don't think anybody understood any of that. I think they heard it, Yes. But I'm guessing they didn't understand it. Did you understand any of that? Yeah, I did. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> All right, what's up? <laughs> okay, so what did he say? Okay, you going to make me <laughs> I mean, he said a lot, but, I mean, I was following. So there's know, African Americans who have, yeah, they have yeah. this thing. What is it? Okay, they did a test, right. and it, it was related to cholesterol. Right. People with, with low uh, cholesterol or whatever. Low levels. LDL. Uh -huh. Yes, absolutely. So now I've got the train of thought. But at any rate, I'm putting you on the spot. No, they prescribe something mm -hmm. to help these individuals. Right. You know, and so. Okay, so. To help, a degree, help I got me, it. Because I am pretty sure there's a way to say that, that we can help everybody get it. So there are these African Americans, and what happened with them? So they found a population of African Americans in this study that had really low cholesterol and no heart disease, basically. And they found that there was a genetic change that caused that. Um, and uh, when we, and, and through a series of steps um, in investigating that change, it's become a drug that everyone can take um, and take that benefit that a small number of individuals uh, had and you know, the whole population potentially that is at risk, uh, it becomes a medication that they can take. That's amazing. So you basically learn from the people who don't get the disease and then you identify a drug that, that basically targets whatever was in their genes to make everybody else act like them genetically. Correct. Wow. Amazing stuff. So that's, is that what you think of when you think of precision medicine? Is that the future? That is one of many parts of it. Yes. That is one of the things. That, that's one of the things I think will be a, um, is a, is a real potential for all of us to really advance the ball. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, learn about lots of diseases. The other thing I think of is, you know, most of our cohorts, you talked about a million people, most mm -hmm. of our cohorts that, that we have collected are really focused on certain diseases or disease classes. And we have very intentionally made this about health. One of the big points of information we're collecting are electronic health records, which uh, increasingly have a really robust um, amount of information about you know all sorts of disease and drugs that people are taking in laboratory values and whether those drugs work or not and whether you had a side effect or you had to switch and you know that first you're on that third depression drug before it actually you know took effect so um, but I'd ask you though I'm hearing from the federal government and I'm sure you guys are reading all this stuff too that there's legislation that's coming out to try to stop the blocking of information in electronic health records. So are you saying that it's going to be, or that it is now easy 
to take the electronic health record data around the country and create all of us? Or is that another challenge that we have to deal with? It's a huge challenge. Uh, there is not a research set that I know of that has unified a bunch of electronic health records right. all across the country into one spot for research um, outside of all of us. And our teams uh, uh, here at Vanderbilt and Columbia have been working, uh, and then all the different healthcare providers that are sending data are working really hard to put these in the common formats that make sense to people. Um, we are getting the data out pretty effectively for the healthcare centers that are part of all of us, um, but it's still a lot of work to put them in the in the same common, understandable format. Would this be something that researchers could subscribe to and use in the future to like test their theories against? Is it going to be yes. open access? Is One of our uh, core values is to create a very broadly accessible research resource for the world to come in and do research with. Test against it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, you have all, you are, you know, patient experience czar. And we want to get all of our patients to join all of us. What do you think? Are they going to be willing? Are they going to say you're crazy? Are they going to have concerns? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I think that um, it, it is, uh, to Josh's point earlier, I think that there is a segment of our population that's altruistic. I want to help humankind get better. And I'm willing to give my data to that. I think there's another segment of our population that's skeptical to say, how is this data going to be used potentially against against others? How, is it mm. going to be used in the wrong ways? Right. And then I think there's another that's wholly individual. Is it going to be used against me? Is it somehow going to come back to say, I can't get my insurance? I can't get, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, life insurance. Let's just say that I give this and it's identified that I have this gene, and all of a sudden, it, you know, life insurance says, oh, sorry, you're more expensive now, so we're gonna put you over here. So, Rochelle, what do you think about this? You have a big community of people. Do you think you could convince them to do this, or do you, would you even do it? Um, I kind of thinking about when I have gone in for surgery, mm-hmm. and they can, especially when I had my kidney cancer, mm-hmm. and they ask for part of, you know, you know, they come in and, they, and they'll say, you know, can we use this part, I guess, for research or right, something right. like that. I'm always a little apprehensive because I don't know the details. I don't know you know, mm-hmm. um, what's going to happen afterwards, you know. Right. Is it just related to me or is it used to help other people? Right. You know, and so at the time, I don't think that's a good time to ask me that question when I'm getting ready to go under the knife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I'm focused on that, so I'm not trying to think about what's going on. It, it might be the drugs talking, <laughs> yeah. but I just have to ask you this question. Yeah. 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 So it's a possibility, having more information, having more knowledge of what's going to, it's going to be used for, then, you know, I might consider. Hmm. So I'm going to push on that just a little bit. So your family, if, do you think there's any way that you could get your daughter, for example, to join this based on what you have heard? Um, probably. Really? Maybe. What She's do you think? very strong-minded. I so. know. What do you think would be her concerns? <laughs> um, she would have a lot of questions, like, you know, uh, what happens afterwards, you know. Um, so I, I think if, her, if it was clear information as to the processes then she would probably say yes. So, Josh, how are you dealing with all that? That sounds like between Brian and Rochelle, there's a lot of mm-hmm. concerns. Yeah, I, th- I think I think they're great concerns. I mean, I think uh, in one of our um, uh, 
aspects is really make sure we communicate enough about the program and the protections in it that people can understand uh, their, their fears. I mean, I think one of the things I hear a lot is stuff about like things like insurability or will, you know, will this be used by um, uh, uh, the police or Homeland Security or something like that? Or, or um, uh, you know, is, it, is my data private? And, and, and who will know, you know what's happening to me. Um, so there's a number of steps we've put into place, um, both uh, uh, on the kind of the computational side, um, as well as uh, kind of the legal side um, to try to uh, alleviate some of those fears. So um, uh, first off, uh, uh, the data, uh, you can have access to your own data if you wish, um, but uh, the data is um, uh, what we kind of call de-identified um, for, for researchers. So all the obvious identifiers are stripped from it. And uh, we take a, a, a lot of care to make sure that researchers who come in and are approved to use the resource um, understand that, you know, one of the things that they complete, it's completely uh, forbidden to do is try to re-identify someone. We know that we um, uh, exceed the most common standards for um, uh, what it means to be uh, kind of uh, that de-identified data. Um, and uh, but uh, there are some times when you want to do things like seasonality and things like that that would um, put you at a little bit more risk but we protect those data more but none of the data has obvious identifiers on it um, uh, and then um, uh, another thing is we have actually protections uh, legally against it being used by the FBI or, or any other sort of police groups that's part of a law um, uh, and um, part of what we call have a certificate of confidentiality um, that uh, says that these data are research data and can't be used for other research uses. Some of the famous cases that have happened around that actually didn't have any prohibition on that kind of use of the data, um, where we have uh, many sorts of prohibitions, um, including right. computational, legal, um, uh, you know, ethical, contractual, um, all that kind of stuff that helps prevent those kinds of use cases. Do you know which identifiers are being removed? I do. Can you? Would you I, mind sharing them? Well, I, I can't say I comprehensively know everything, but um, with regard to that, but uh, clearly it's uh, name, address, phone number, you know, medical record number, um, all those kind of number identifiers that are in there. Uh, I, we have two reg We have two data tiers, and the one that's that kind of that first uh, what we're launching with data tier that researchers can access. Uh, the dates get shifted as well. We um, actually remove certain kinds of diagnoses that are. Um, maybe more identifying um, in, in terms of being able to look at the newspaper and, right, and, and right. find them. Um, those kinds of things as well. Um, uh, some, some things around, um, uh, I believe, military service history may be part of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the, um, the more controlled tier uh, lets some of that more back in. So the, 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 the higher, more um, uh, granular data where we can do things, look at like flu outbreaks, right. um, look at... Uh, those kinds of seasonal trends that become important to investigate certain things that are of really big public health um, concern, um, uh, you yes. know, has a little bit additional step to get it to. What does date shifting do? So date shifting is a place where if it happened on March 1st, you randomly shift a certain number of days consistent in the record. So instead of March 1st, maybe it's, you know, January 15th, or maybe it's July 23rd, you know, it, it, it and, and then it's, 
uh, you can tell that something happened five days later, but you don't know when it actually happened. And that you know puts you into a lot more buckets of possibility. Right. So if you happen to know someone, uh, if you happen to know a, a friend of yours visited a hospital, which in our system you probably wouldn't even be able to find that, but uh, you wouldn't even know that that, that happened at a certain date. And right. It makes it a lot harder to find who someone is. Yeah, there's, there's one more I thought of. <clears throat> so we said three, there's one more. And I think it's at a philosophical level, there are people who just don't want to know. I'd rather live today for today mm-hmm. and not worry about tomorrow. Yeah. And there's others who say, I want to know what's going to happen right. to me. If yeah. I want to know what's going to happen to me, I'm more likely to participate. If I'm going to live today today, yep. yeah. mm, I may be a little skeptical of that. And that's why we, we really, um, we're really careful about uh, providing education before someone gets information back. It is a choice. And not everyone will choose to get information back. Um, the vast majority in, in, in our, uh, all of our pilot work suggests that uh, you know, 90 plus percent of people probably do want information back, but certainly not everyone does. I have patients that are part of studies I've done that, you know, just well, like you me. said, very happy to give me, uh, very happy for you to have all my data. Mm-hmm. They'll tell me, just take it and go do good mm-hmm. and, and you know, uh, help mankind. But, but you know, I don't want to know. Don't call me, I'll call you. Exactly. Right, right. And, and that's, that's wonderful. Um, uh, you know, I completely understand. There are certain, uh, we are not returning things for which we can do nothing. So uh, everything that we are planning to return is something that's actionable that we can actually, you know, you could do something. Um, you could take a different medicine that will be effective and, and, and may not have a side effect. You can uh, do something preventative in terms of earlier, you know, uh, cancer screening or something like that. Everything that we return, you know, is is actionable. Um, uh, and, and that way it's, you know, we're not returning something that um, you can't do anything about. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this all sounds, I mean, it's a big, obviously a giant database. Um, as, an, as a fellow informatician, what do you think the big informatics issues are here? Like, what are the things that people don't realize make this a hard problem to deal with? You know, there are, there are a ton. And it, it's, it's one of the real joys, actually, is, is, is solving problems that, you know, uh, uh, when, you, when we started, mm-hmm. uh, didn't have solutions. Some of them, we didn't even know there'd be problems. And some of, many of them, people thought, uh, would be impossible to solve. So, so, so people... Uh, yeah, tell, her, tell the people who have no idea about informatics about something yeah. they would have imagined would just be easy that it turns out is extremely hard. So I mentioned earlier that getting all the electronic health records in one place usable for research is, is something that um, uh, people uh, didn't believe would be possible. People didn't believe when we started this um, uh, in 2015 and wrote kind of a big white paper for what this would look like, a, a, a blueprint, so to speak, for how to design the study. Um, uh, we had to argue strongly for the, the value of electronic health records in the first place, that you could actually use them for research. Um, uh, and, then, uh, and then even in that, which um, I thought we were pretty forward-looking, I didn't think we'd be able to get things like uh, clinical notes um, but you know, we're uh, not only we're getting sites to share information. We thought we might have to go ask sites every time. If you want to study heart disease, you have to go ask each of the sites to go find patients with heart disease, which is a really slow process. Um, uh, but you know, we're actually being able to pull all the information together, and we're putting it, making it all look as well as we can, look the same. So, yeah. heart disease at institution one looks like heart disease at institution 40. Um, and that's a real challenge. Yeah. 
And then we have simple things, even in quotes, simple things like ICD-9 and ICD-10. So which these are, are the billing yeah. codes. When you go see the doctor before 2015, we used to use ICD-9 in this country. After that, we use ICD-10. Um, uh, you know, that that's the tip of the iceberg, and and that's something that that has to be solved. Uh, the problem is much much more complicated than that. With when you talk about a lab test or something like that, but um, putting those data together. Housing the amount of information, you know, the um, there are not, uh, you know, kind of it's talked about the Apollo mission and how it was like 25 to 40 percent of all integrated circuits produced were consumed by that, you know, project depending on the year. Um, uh, you know, we are going to be probably about 40 percent of all the world's whole genome sequence information, um, and that volume of information in one place linked with all this phenotypic data is just a tremendous amount of information to manage. Um, the web has scaled data in a massive way, but this is still a very massive amount yeah, of data. And right. there actually aren't good tools. And we're integrating or designing across the consortium the tools to manage these data. But it's 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 a lot, still a lot of data. Um, and uh, I, Who else is in this consortium? So um, we have an, uh, quite a few awardees. Um, uh, I, when you talk about the data components of it, the Broad Institute on the genomics side, which and is that's part in of Boston? that's in Boston, um, uh, Columbia, New York, um, uh, Vanderbilt here in Nashville, um, uh, UT uh, University of Texas at Houston, um, uh, our our um, uh, in Verily, um, which is Google, formerly known as Google Life Sciences, are the major partners in the data center. And then um, we have about uh, 40 or so uh, academic institutions that are recruiting, just doing a, a tremendous job enrolling participants across the country. Um, and then we have other partners like uh, Walgreens, Quest, and uh, QTC that are part of a network working with Scripps out in California um, to uh, allow people to enroll who aren't affiliated with a you know University of California, Northwestern, or one of these other enrollment. So basically, I, go, I can go to the website, I sign up. And if my institution isn't one of the sites, then I can go to Walgreens and actually give them whatever specimens I need to give them to be a part of this. Um, you used to be able to, Walgreens actually just closed their uh, oh, uh, clinics. Um, uh, so, so what we're doing- How dare you, Walgreens? <laughs> You've ruined it. Okay, go ahead, go ahead, please. So, um, I'll probably uh, have to cut that out. Yeah, you probably will. <laughs> So, uh, but it so, really so, felt good to say it. So it did, yeah. The um, so uh, what we're doing for people who are not near an academic or, or medical center that's enrolling is uh, uh, what we're doing now is um, uh, we're actually uh, starting to send um, uh, boxes that they can take to a Quest. Oh. So Quest has clinics all across the country, and so they could you know get delivered a box or a spit into a vial. We're doing spit kits as well. Um, and uh, uh, that enables you know, other ways for people to enroll um, if they're not nearby one of these medical centers that's part of the program. This sounds pretty enormous. But, but I'm, you know, honestly, knowing you and your skill set, we could not have a better leader for it, both here and there. So that's, that's great. What questions do you guys have about this? I can't think of any. Nothing? Yeah. Brian, anything? What are you most excited about? How's it going to look different 10 years from now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, you know, one of the things that really excites me is a potential for a cultural change in how we practice medicine. Um, uh, you know, here at Vanderbilt, we've been, I think, pretty effective at taking some discovery items and putting them into practice, especially around genomic medicine. But, you know, it's been pretty hard to take off in the, in the country. 
Um, I think you could see, uh, be, you know, we're, we're going to have all sorts of discoveries on diseases and things like that. But I think, you know, there could be this cultural change that we just start practicing precision medicine. Like, like if a million people start having these results in their hands and going to doctors all across the country, it will start to become more commonplace um, that, uh, that this will happen. Another thing I'm really excited about is health disparities. Um, uh, you know, uh, so we didn't talk about these numbers. That's a fancy term. What do people mean by health disparities? Yeah, so, so you know, I'm, most, I'm closest to the genetics part of it, but it's, it's across everything. Um, uh, you know, uh, outcomes with cancer, survival, um, diagnosis and screening um, is, it are, are different in different populations. And uh, sometimes that's based on socioeconomic status. It can be based on uh, geography. It can be based on uh, race, ethnicity. And, and, and so we don't actually understand a lot of the root causes for some of these things. Um, and we, we certainly don't have great research studies to understand them. But if, if, if I talk about the one I know best with genetics, um, and, you know, uh, uh, we're probably about 10, you know, 86% or so of all the genetic studies uh, uh, are done in people of European ancestry. And that, that hurts everyone. That's not us, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle's like, what? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and we can see that, like, you know, that, like, you know, the, that, that hurts everyone. So, so that means that we can't, inter- you know, so that we talked about the uh, Dallas Heart Study earlier, you know, a small population of African Americans where we found that this variant and this new drug that can treat, you know, everyone and who isn't already protected. Right. The, um, uh, it also means that when we, you know, uh, sequence uh, a population of individuals um, who are European ancestry, uh, and we think they have a variant that's going to cause disease, maybe it's in 25% of people who are Asian. <laughs> it's benign. Right. Or, or you know, uh, so, so we don't understand this. So there are cures, there are uh, risk variants that we don't understand, and it just means that we can't interpret variants in diverse ancestries as well. So, you know, we know less about people who are of African ancestry and can interpret their genetics less well, but it hurts everyone. Yeah. There was an article in Science about this not too long Mm -hmm. ago that just essentially said, if all of us don't contribute to all of us, then it actually isn't as helpful. Mm -hmm. Because, because, you know, if the systems work the way they're supposed to, then what will happen is, you know, those of us who don't contribute enough patients will basically get the same old average care medicine. So it's the best the doctors can do, but it won't be based on any of this new cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of the patients, there will be better and better and better ratios from successful to unsuccessful treatment. They'll be much more likely that the therapy you get the first time is the right therapy versus the average therapy, which may be wrong for certain populations. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thank you. I try. I try to listen to you <laughs> as much as I can. So I guess my last question for for this group in this whole space is, do we feel like medicine's ready for what's about to happen? Are doctors ready? Are nurses ready? Are patients ready? Do they understand it enough that when the doctor says, um, you know, Rochelle, I I see you have this particular test result, but based on these these recommendations that I'm getting from the computer system, your your other people in your therapy may have gotten this drug, but you need to get this other drug because of these results. Are people ready to hear that conversation and know what it means? You know, I haven't answered this, but I'd love to hear Brian's. Um, no. 
No, I don't. I don't think we are ready. Um, and actually, I would I would challenge you, Kevin. I could think of a really cool podcast where you get some practicing physicians and ask them, yeah. how would your conversation change if you knew this versus this? What would you actually say? Yeah. How would you say it? Because it's all in that delivery right? that is going to, for Rochelle and I, we're going to do something with it, we're not going to do something with it. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, just unfortunately the economics of our system, I think there's going to be, you know, we're still in a fee-for-service, so there's going to be inherent fear of, well, if this, you know, helps steer that I don't have to do this, is that less volume? Is that, is that, is that Are we less, doing it for some other are reason? Are we doing it for some other reason, yeah. exactly. Now, people may not talk about that, but those, those tugs and pulls are going to be there as this information becomes available. So, no, I, I don't think we're ready. And I want to say that's a good point. <clears throat> have you heard the phrase, I've heard this a lot, that doctors experiment on you? Yes. Right. And I do worry a little bit that it's going to be hard for us to convince people that this is not an experiment. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's an issue? Well, it takes me back to my father because when he was a truck driver, he had to have annual physicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, he retired early, so for about 20 years, he didn't go to the doctor. One of his reasons for not going to the doctor was because my mother stayed in the doctor's office all the time, and they did nothing for her. She still had the same health issues. So as his health continued to decline, there was three things he told me he didn't want. I don't want to go to a doctor. I don't want to go to the hospital, and I don't want to be cut on. All three of those things happened. Mm -hmm. But he didn't choose to fight to live until after he got here and you know he started going through all these health issues with the ruptured aorta and then they found the small non-small cell lung cancer then he wanted to live mm-hmm. but it was too late you know so i mean knowledge of if if probably whatever fears he had you know would have been addressed earlier on he might have had a longer life than dying at 71 which was fairly young yeah mm-hmm. so really what I'm hearing you guys say is that we have to crack through this whole persona that the healthcare system may not be out for your best interests. And then I think, at least what I'm hearing you say, is that may be a real barrier to being ready to have novel therapies that are different than anybody else you know be the right therapy for you. Mm-hmm. Josh, what were you thinking? I was going to agree with Brian. And I think, Rochelle, your story is incredibly powerful. I think we've all yes. seen that with you know, patients we've treated or families yeah. or relatives. Um, the, uh, uh, I think um, something I'll, I'll point to is when we launched pharmacogenetics here in 2010, um, went around and talked to small groups. You know, this is a captive well, just to be clear, academic... Pharmacogenetics, pharmacogenetics was basically when we got people's DNA and then decided which therapies to give them based on genetic variants that they had. This medicine may work, may not work. Right. Is that exactly. right? That's exactly right. Thank we started you. with one drug, um, an important drug to prevent heart attacks after you get a stent. Um, uh, uh, so uh, when we talk to physicians about this, um, I like to say I'd go in these early morning meetings and, and people would throw tomatoes at me. You know, um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, they were not happy with how this would disrupt their, you know, their 10-minute their visit mm-hmm. and uh, potential cost, or, and, and they didn't know how to use it anyway, and doesn't matter, and this sort of thing. So we showed them data from their own patients and, and, and you know, what we th- the, the number of heart attacks we thought we could prevent wow, that's powerful. and stuff like that. It was very powerful. And, you know, some of the most vocal critics over time became our greatest advocates. 
and uh, uh, this is this is not anything new. Um, no. uh, uh, this is a, a adoption curve as you see anywhere. Um, but we lived through that here, mm-hmm. and um, uh, uh, and it became standard practice that people actually part of their um, DNA, so to speak, part yeah. of who we are at Vanderbilt that we did this. Um, over time, so it took time. Yeah. Um, one of the things I think is really important that maybe we didn't do so well back then, um, uh, that we're trying to le- at least learn from this program is we do have a national genetic counseling resource that participants can uh, talk to. We have you know patient sort of doctor friendly kind of language we think, and the reports that we're working with the FDA to produce, um, and uh, we hope to ease some of that transition, it's not going to be, it's still going to be um, foreign, but there's going to be someone that you can call mm-hmm. that's a pro at this to help figure it out. I think the hope is, is that today's young generation, they're not afraid of sharing their data. You know, my, my teenagers, whatever, here it is, okay, mm-hmm. fine. And I think that if we can harness that and train them on how to use this data, because they're the doctors of tomorrow. They're the administrators of tomorrow. They're the CEOs of tomorrow. If we can get them comfortable with it, it'll take time, but I think it shifts. So they'll say, well, my family history is I had these older relatives who didn't share anything, and they all died. (laughs) But we're going to do much better. (laughs) Hopefully it won't be like that. As an older relative, I don't really want that to happen. Um, Well, this has been great. I've learned a lot. And uh, I really appreciate everybody spending a little bit of time talking about this and Thank you, Rochelle, for sharing some really intimate pieces of your history, which I think helps other people to understand this. Mm -hmm. Because this is a tough topic. You know, when you talk about medicine and and change in medicine, it's tough. Wow, that was great stuff. I am so glad that we were able to get Rochelle, Josh, and Brian together. I think we covered a lot of questions people have asked me so far on podbean.com or through Twitter at KBJ Vanderbilt. So thank you all for your questions, and I hope this episode helped. Well, as I mentioned, we we didn't have a songwriter for this episode, but I've asked a friend who you've heard sing in our inaugural episode. Rhett McDaniel is a quintessential Nashville in the Round songwriter with some really powerful songs like the one you're about to hear that no one has made into a hit. When he told me about this song, I realized it fit the conversation we had in this episode about precision medicine extremely well. The song is called The Dash. I asked Rhett how he came up with this song, and this is what he told me. Supposedly, it was on a sign in front of a church. Um, The song is tricky because it takes on some pretty big existential ideas, according to Rhett. The song is about a man who is packing up the last things from his house where he grew up and is reminded how his parents lived a good life full of love, and that things like letters and photos are the kinds of artifacts we leave behind. The character in the song has a moment of realization that he was able to learn more about them by seeing these things packed away for years that revealed new insights into who they were as people that he knew nothing about that were manifest before he was born. I won't spare you the discovery of listening to the rest of these lyrics, but this is a quintessential country music song with a really deep message that I hope you all enjoy. So please take a listen to this amazing song. Make sure you take a listen to Rhett on RhettMcDaniel.com. Oh, and please check me out on Twitter, again, at KBJ Vanderbilt, and on Facebook if you look up Informatics in the Round. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to it on Podbean or on your favorite podcast platform. 
I'm trying to get funding for next year, so the more f followers I can get, the more likely it'll be that I can attract some funding. So again, thank you all. Hope you enjoy this song. Um, I actually had some requests for a song in the comment section. I'm going to do my best to honor that. Um, it's another song that I wrote with Adam, and as with most songs written with Adam, they sound better with Adam. <laughs> so I have asked him to do a virtual duet with me on this song that we wrote together. Uh, it's called The Dash. So Adam, if you're ready, we're going to give this a go. I was going through some boxes in the house where I grew up when I found a birth announcement hidden with some old junk. I was born at 602 on the 14th of November, the son of John and Ruth in a hospital in Denver. Neath that, a yellow clipping that announced their wedding day. Next to a picture of my dad with his first Chevrolet. There was a snapshot of my mother in an airmail on the low. Bound for where my dad was stationed with a letter that she wrote. And as I looked through their things, I started to realize that being born and being buried are just two points on a line. That they carve on your tombstone with a chisel don't mean as much as the dash in the middle. Well, someday someone might be looking through the things that once were mine, and I hope they read the story. Written there between the lines Of a man who lived a life Anyone would be proud of Never scared to fight for what is right Not afraid to love And as they look through my things I hope they start to realize That being born and being buried That's just two points on a line And the numbers that they carve Tombstone with a chisel Don't mean as much As the dash In the middle It wasn't walking through that front door Or out the back to leave It was the last walk through this empty house That meant the most to me And as I locked the door behind me, I felt something new begin. Cause the shorter something starts, something else must surely end. And the numbers that they carve on your tombstone with a chisel don't mean as much as the dash. But they don't mean as much as the dash. But they don't in the mid